pleasure to introduce Regents Professor Marsha Rieke. Um, Marsha has many accomplishments, uh, but the thing I'm most grateful to her for, besides meeting NIRCAM, is that she agreed to be uh, take over from Chris Impey as associate head of the Department of Astronomy until James Webb launches. So I'm the only astronomer I know that wouldn't mind a slight delay in the launch date of James Webb. But Marsha's going to describe today what she's going to be doing when she stops being associate uh, head of the department and is focusing on exploiting NIRCAM for great science. So we're going, thanks Buell, we're going to um, shift topics here a little bit and instead of talking about things very nearby, um, which James Webb Space Telescope is going to study and we're going to now talk about things very far away and in fact as far away as I hope, uh, as far away as we can possibly observe. And I'm calling this looking back to the beginning of time and you'll see what I mean by that in a moment. I will also um, give you a preview of um, a sentence a little bit later in the talk which is we can't actually get to the beginning of time for some good reasons, but I'll show you how close we can get. So this, this is a nice um, artist's image of what JWST will look like when it's out in space. And it was originally proposed to be what was dubbed the first light machine which was a misnomer on never, several grounds, but the idea was that it would find the very first stars and galaxies. It cannot possibly find the very first star because one star at the distance that it <clears throat> would be if it, we were seeing it as the first star to form, you'd need a telescope something like 40 miles across, not too practical. But what does the beginning of time mean? Now, this is a, um, an sort of a schematic way to represent the history of the universe. So we live out here and we look back down this way. Don't think of the universe as a tube, but this is a, a way to kind of depict time and distance. And at the beginning there was the Big Bang and there was inflation. And then at about 400,000 years after the Big Bang is when electrons went back into orbit around the, the numerous protons in space to form hydrogen atoms. And that rejoining of the electrons and the protons released energy that we now see as cosmic microwave background. And so this point, this 400,000 year point, before that the universe was very um, hot and like looking inside um, George's blast furnace without any way to turn the blast furnace off. You, it was just too hot. Light didn't travel very far. And so this 400,000 year point, that is the limit that we can go and see back to. And we know lots about earlier times in the universe because we've studied the character of this light and its pattern and so on and learned a lot. But if we want to learn about how all these galaxies and stars have come to be. We need to study all the processes as close as we can get to that 400,000 year point. So when I say we're going to look back to the beginning of time, I don't mean all the way back to the Big Bang. I mean to this 400,000 year point. 
And so far, the best we've been able to do is get to about this yellow line using the Hubble Space Telescope. So that's pretty far back. We've done a, we've done a lot. And so the stage has been set very nicely for what um, the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to do. So when I talk about seeing the first star or this or that, how, how do, oops, my little changer got a little happy there. How do we know what is, what, what is the time that we're seeing? How do we know when we see something in a photograph that we say it's you know, so and so old? How do we know that? Well, we know it because light has a speed limit. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. It is so fast that we normally don't think about the fact that it takes light a little while to get from here to there. You know, when you flip the switch, the light seems to come on instantaneously. It doesn't. It actually takes a tiny, tiny fraction of a second for the light to reach your eye. And so if we look out in space, it takes light eight minutes to get to us from the sun. So if some calamity with unknown physics turned the sun off, we wouldn't know for eight minutes. Well, that's just a small example. If we go to the star Proxima Sen that Jared was talking about, it takes that light 4.3 years to get to us. That's the nearest star, 4.3 years. So we see Proxima Sen as it was four years ago. That's not a very big deal in terms of um, how long astronomy goes and how long things last in the universe. But when we go back and find the very most distant galaxy that we can find, it may take light billions of years to come to us because that galaxy is so far away. So we can see light that's reaching us from objects that formed long time before the Earth ever formed. The light from the nearest galaxy that we can see where we live here in Tucson, M31, that galaxy's light takes us, as <coughs> takes us so long to get to us that we're seeing that galaxy at a time when the first humans were just beginning to walk on the surface of the Earth. And that's the nearest galaxy. So if we can figure out how far away a galaxy is, we can then calculate that it took its light, you know, 11.2 billion years to reach us or whatever. And so we can see exactly how old things are. And it's a little bit perverse that the more distant something is, the younger we see it. Because it takes the light that long to get to us. So the trick then in knowing about what time is to know the object's distance. And so let's go to the next step. Uh, we're going to have a minor diversion here to make certain that we all understand the nomenclature here. A light year is how far light travels in one year. Many, many of you are no doubt familiar with that. That's 5.88 trillion miles. That's not a very convenient unit. But for galaxies that are really far away, astronomers use a different shorthand. And so what Edwin Hubble is most famous for is not having a telescope named after him, but rather discovering that the universe is expanding. And that expansion translates into the following useful tool. 
the further away a galaxy is, the faster it is moving away from us. So if you measure how fast something is moving away from us, you can calculate its distance right away. It's taken a while to get that law calibrated properly, and in fact, the Hubble Space Telescope played a big role in calibrating it. And so if we took, um, split the light uh, from a galaxy into its constituent wavelengths, this is now a visible spectrum going from purple to red, and you see these black cutouts, that's where um, material in the galaxy absorbs light. These are nice markers of wavelengths. If we look at a galaxy that's moving away from us, which virtually all galaxies are except a couple close to us, you see that the, these absorptions get shifted toward redder wavelengths. And so if we measure the amount of shift, we can calculate the distance. And it turns out that in ter for, for the kinds of technologies that astronomers have had for a century now, being able to measure these shifts is pretty straightforward. We're very good at measuring wavelengths accurately. And so this amount of shift we call a red shift because galaxies are shifted to the red. And we use this letter Z to indicate the red shift. And often you'll see someone talking about, ah, the most distant object we found so far has redshift, you know, like seven. Um, that's not the record anymore, but that's what it was for a while. So if we, an astronomer quotes to you the redshift of an object, if you are sufficiently adroit at somewhat complicated mathematics, you can turn that into how long uh, ago the light left the object. And we call this time a look-back time, meaning if we see a galaxy and we measure its redshift, we say, ah, that distance translates into a light travel time of some number of billions of years, or look-back time. And so here's the scale of redshift 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and the look-back time in billions of years, 2, 4, and you can see that it's not just a straight line you have to know, you have to be able to do some calculating with some ugly looking equations. And you'll notice that as you get to a certain redshift, this isn't increasing so rapidly anymore. There's kind of a compression uh, in time. And another way to look at that, this is, here is a plot where we put the Big Bang over here. We have redshift running here from 20 down to zero and look back time going from, if we look back close to the Big Bang, we're seeing back 13 billion years, and then we, as we come close toward us, that time gets less and less. And you'll see that these times here are uniform intervals, but the red shifts get squashed together. So you have to remember that when someone talks about redshift 5, redshift 10, redshift 15, no one's seen a redshift 15 object yet, but that those things don't differ very much in age, but something that's um, redshift of one, um, we're seeing back nearly eight billion years ago. So uh, we get a lot of the time history in the first part of redshift. 
So let's take a quick look at the progress of looking back in time and finding these distant galaxies. In the 1990s, um, the most distant galaxies known were at a round redshift of 1, and that represented a look back time of just under half the age of the universe. And during this epoch um, was when, as George explained, we were still doing infrared astronomy mostly from the ground. And we had a program here where we were able to measure some of these redshift 1 galaxies um, in the near infrared. And we thought we were heroes for being able to measure these redshift 1 objects. And now my colleagues say, redshift 1, that's nothing. That's nearby. Well, it's not that nearby. And they're all kind of dim. But that was kind of the best you could do from the ground because these distant galaxies are faint. And the further away they are, fainter they are. So when the Hubble telescope was launched, um, in, it got its repair, its new spectacles and all that. In 1995, a former U of A professor, Bob Williams, was the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute. And he decided that an interesting thing to do would be to point the Hubble at one patch on the sky for a number of days and try to find the most distant object possible. That was a big success and led to um, what we called the Hubble Deep Field. And that got us out to about redshift of four so that we were looking back now. Um, you know, the age of these objects were just you know, one and a half billion years after the Big Bang. And then things got improved. Better detectors were installed on Hubble. And the last image that of this kind that the Hubble has taken has gotten us within about 480 million years of the Big Bang. So starting to get close. And JWST, we're going to try to press to the limit. So this is now a picture of the most distant galaxy known. And it was, it, this is a Hubble Space Telescope picture of that object. You can't hardly see it in here. The light from this object has taken 13.4 billion years to get to us. So this image is from light that left long before the solar system formed. So it's a little bit of a mind-stretching thought there. And this galaxy, as we're seeing it in here, in this image, is no more than about 400 million years old, just calculated from we know the age of the universe, we subtract the light travel time, and we get the age of the galaxy. And this curious plot shows a, a jump here. And it is this fact that this part is, is has no brightness at all, and then it suddenly jumps up. We know that this is an absorption edge from hydrogen. And so we can calculate the redshift from knowing that this is observed at nearly 1.5 microns, but it left at 0.09 microns. So you can calculate the factor by which the wavelengths got redshifted. And I have to say that this object at z of 11, it is very unusual. It's extremely bright. It's much brighter than people thought we would be able to find. But so far, we've only found 
one of these, and so we don't know if this is some kind of quirk of nature or exactly what this is. But this tells us that with a bit more sensitivity and with another factor that I'll explain in a moment, we should be able to settle the question of is our picture of how galaxies form right or wrong? So the state of the art in finding distant galaxies is the Hubble Space Telescope right now. And so here's our friend the redshift. Here's that one galaxy at Z of 11. And Hubble's found lots and lots in this kind of intermediate redshift region where we've learned a, an enormous amount about how galaxies form and how their properties get set. But you notice that um, as we look toward more and more distant and, and hence seeing them at, at younger and younger galaxies, it's like there's a cliff here. And this one object that I showed you the picture of stands out um, in this plot. So why is there a cliff in the Hubble data? Why suddenly do we not see any more galaxies? Well, I'm going to play a little movie here. This little box shows the redshift, and it's going to go from 3 to 10 in this little movie. Along the bottom is the wavelength that we're going to observe at from 0.3 microns or 300 nanometers, kind of the shortest wavelength your eye can possibly see, out to George's 10 microns. And the James Webb Space Telescope is going to work over this range, actually further out even um, to the right than's on this plot. The Hubble Space Telescope only works over this range and stops just a little ways into the infrared. That's partly because its primary mirror is kept at 76 degrees Fahrenheit, which was the temperature at which it was polished um, here on Earth before it got launched. 76 Fahrenheit is, in, in George's blast first analogy, really hot. And so it wipes out longer infrared wavelengths. You simply can't use a telescope that warm to observe at these longer wavelengths. JWST, on the other hand, its mirror is going to be held at something like minus 370 Fahrenheit, so we, we can see the infrared from these more distant objects. And now another part of this plot, you see this thin gray line going through here. That's the output of a galaxy that we might expect to see out in the universe that's form, forming stars. And these funny blue and red points are, if you put a piece of glass in your light beam that limits you to seeing wavelengths only over this range or this range, that's actually how we take pictures and measure something about the galaxy. We, we take an image through a particular filter that lets us plot wavelengths on this kind of scale. So these filters can be observed with Hubble. And all of these and some more can be observed with JWST. So let's watch what happens when I start this little movie. And keep an eye on what's happening here with the redshift. And you'll notice that something wipes out the galaxy output as we go to higher and higher redshifts. And when we get to redshift of 10, which is where this simulation stops, 
you'll see that this galaxy, the, all the light shortward of here, all the way this way, is being absorbed by hydrogen along the very long path that the light takes to us. And so the reason that there's a cliff near Z of 10 is that Hubble just doesn't go far enough into the infrared. It can't see, it can't detect this because it stops. It doesn't have any filter at, or ability to observe at the correct wavelength. And so finding more distant galaxies is really the domain of the James Webb. That's why we're building it. That's why I've suffered through 20 years of telecons. <laughs> All right, so what shape will these galaxies have? What will they look like? Well, nearby galaxies were actually classified by Hubble into this, what was called the tuning fork. Hubble thought that galaxies moved along this pattern. They don't. Um, it's much more complicated than he imagined. But we'd like to know what, what factors determine whether a galaxy ends up looking like this or like this and so on. And as we um, use the Hubble data, we can see that, OK, those are the, the shapes that I just showed you at z of 0 nearby. If we go out to one where Hubble is still working extremely well, in fact, you can make a lot of progress on the ground, we're looking back to a point 4 billion years ago. You can still recognize galaxy shapes. But when you start looking back 11 billion years ago to what we would call redshift of two or a bit, things are starting to look a little blobby. And then at the very limit of what Hubble can really do, you see that the shapes um, don't have these nice spirals and so on. And here's one where you can see something happening. There are a lot more examples of what look to be small bits of galaxy colliding um, at these long look back times, close to, to the beginning. But we really don't understand how all the shapes merge together and end up what we see now. So what is, um, let me briefly touch on another issue about the significance of galaxy ages. What's a galaxy made of? Stars, stars exactly. And so how stars might change over time affects how the galaxy will change over time. And so this is a, a kind of diagram that is mostly used in studying nearby groups of stars, star clusters. And this vertical is how bright the star is from dim to bright, blue to red. And over here, there's an age scale. And these are all different star clusters within the Milky Way. And if you plot all the stars from one of these star clusters, you'll find that they lie on one of these colored plots. So that, for example, a star cluster called Praesepe, or the beehive that's um, visible at night now, the stars will all line along this and maybe some over here. If we look at um, H and Chi Persei, a, a double star cluster you can see uh, in the fall sky, its stars will all fall along here. And so you see that these, these clusters have some very bright and very blue stars, whereas an old star cluster, like this one called M67, it doesn't have any stars brighter than about here, 
um, in this track. And by knowing how stars evolve and use up their hydrogen, we can say, oh, if you're a cluster like this Praesipi and your turn off this main sequence is here, ah, oh, you're, you're a couple billion years old. Something like H and Chi Persei, where this turn off from this main track is up here, ah, you're, you're about uh, 10 million years old, and so on. So the color of the stars and the age of the galaxy might correlate in some way. And in fact, if we imagined that right at the beginning, a galaxy turned all of its gas into stars, and then we just watched it, the age of this kind of a star cluster would correspond to Z of 74. Ain't going to happen anytime soon, folks. <laughs> but you can see that as we get down to 160 million years, down to a billion, the redshifts become more like what we might, ex you know, what we can measure. And so by studying the stars in the galaxy, the color of the, the starlight, we learn something again. But it turns out that, you remember I said that these are the ages if all the gas turned into stars right away. That doesn't actually seem to happen, and it's a much more complicated um, pattern because many galaxies have, have stars this young, but yet we know that they're, very, they're relatively old galaxies, so stars are being formed even today in the Milky Way and other galaxies. So understanding the star formation history is something we want to do with James Webb, but it's not going to correlate completely simply with the age of the galaxy. So one thing that we've been doing um, is simulating what we will see with the web because we have to go very quickly from the data, the images that we take into using the other instruments to get more wavelengths, more information. So this is a simulated image that Christopher Wilmer, who was out by the display earlier this morning, has created. And if we zoom in, we're being optimistic and we're hoping that we can find galaxies forming stars with look-back times that get us really close to the age of the universe. I don't think we'll be able to quite get back to that 400,000-year point, but we're going to get close. And this is a picture. Um, this, the gray part back here is an expanded version of the original Hubble Deep Field. And all these squares are places where we're going to take data when we get our turn with James Webb. And so I hope you can stay tuned for phenomenal results, and maybe in about two years we can give you a very different talk. Thanks.